0: The French Revolution and the Rights of Man Controversy, Part 2 Mary Wollstonecraft, William Godwin, and Hannah Moore Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Men, 1790, was written in response to Burke and addressed as a letter to him. We'll hear more about her when we look at her vindication of the rights of woman, one of the pioneering statements of the feminist movement. Here, in her A Vindication of the Rights of Men, Wollstonecraft is very critical of property, especially hereditary property, which Burke defended so vigorously. For Wollstonecraft, property laws are unfair and oppressive and not liberating. In a rejection of Burke's entire premise, Wollstonecraft argues that our rights are not from our forefathers, as Burke argued, but from God. She even claims that Burke's respect for rank has swallowed up his humanity. Later passages define marriage as legal prostitution. Note that we'll return to this point when we read her biographical notes and her vindication of the rights of woman. She is particularly critical of the practice of primogeniture, whereby the eldest son inherits everything so as to keep estates intact. She argues that, because of this practice, quote, the younger children have been sacrificed to the eldest son, sent into exile, or confined in convents, that they might not encroach on what was called, with shameful falsehood, the family estate. End of quote. While primogeniture did serve to keep large estates from being divided up, The options for younger sons of noble families were very limited if they wanted to remain respectable. The military and the Church of England were the usual careers for younger sons. Wollstonecraft asks, Why cannot large estates be divided into small farms? These dwellings would indeed grace our land. Why are huge forests still allowed to stretch out with idle pomp and all the indolence of eastern grandeur? Why does the brown waste meet the traveler's view when men want work? End of quote. Burke had defended the American Revolution being sympathetic to the colonists' complaints about taxation without representation, But Wollstonecraft finds an inconsistency between Burke's reverence for property and titles and that support for America, stating, On what principle Mr. Burke could defend American independence, I cannot conceive. Wollstonecraft takes Burke's famous passage about a queen being only a woman, and a woman only an animal, and stands it on its head, They are animals, according to her, if they behave as queens and titled ladies do. Here is the passage. On this scheme of things, a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman, a woman is but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. That's the direct quotation from Burke, and she responds, All true, sir if she is not more attentive to the duties of humanity than queens and fashionable ladies in general are. She also attacks Burke for his lack of sympathy, even his contempt for the poor of the world. She writes, But among all your plausible arguments and witty illustrations, your contempt for the poor always appears conspicuous and rouses my indignation. The following paragraph is in particular, struck me as breathing the most tyrannic spirit and displaying the most factitious feelings. And this is a quotation from Burke. Good order is the foundation of all good things. To be enabled to acquire the people without being servile must be tractable and obedient. The magistrate must have his reverence, the laws, their authority. The body of the people must not find the principles of natural subordination by art rooted out of their minds. They must respect that property of which they cannot partake. They must labor to obtain what by labor can be obtained, and when they find, as they commonly do, the success disproportioned to the endeavor, they must be taught their consolation in the final proportions of eternal justice. End of quote from Burke and Wollstonecraft replies to Burke, it is, sir, possible to render the poor happier in this world without depriving them of the consolation which you gratuitously grant them in the next. They have a right to more comfort than they at present enjoy, and more comfort might be afforded them without encroaching on the pleasures of the rich, not now waiting to inquire whether the rich have any right to exclusive pleasures what do I say? Encroaching? No. If an intercourse were established between them, it would impart the only true pleasure that can be snatched in this land of shadows, this hard school of moral discipline. End of quote. William Godwin was a radical novelist and philosopher who was also the husband of Mary Wollstonecraft and the father of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. By the way, radical was actually an acceptable term for those with progressive policies. For most British citizens, it was more descriptive than pejorative, which is how it would be interpreted today. Godwin wrote a number of novels, but we are going to consider his book of political philosophy called Political Justice, published in 1793. Even by the standards of the day, this book espoused a very radical philosophy, questioning the whole basis for property itself. For example, in one passage, Godwin said that if he possesses ten pounds, but his neighbor has a greater need for this money, then, while no law can compel it, simple justice says that his neighbor is entitled to it because his need is greater. Here is the passage. Quote, but justice is reciprocal. If it be just that I should confer a benefit, it is just that another man should receive it, and if I withhold from him that to which he is entitled, he may justly complain. My neighbor is in want of ten pounds that I can spare. There is no law of political institution to reach this case and transfer the property from me to him, but in a passive sense, unless it can be shown that the money can be more beneficently employed, his right is as complete, though actively he have not the same right or rather duty to possess himself of it, as if he had my bond in his possession, or had supplied me with goods to the amount. End of quote. This is quite a different interpretation of property from that of William Burke. In his discussion of marriage, Godwin regarded marriage as a fraud, a system of property, a monopoly. We can see here some similarities between his views and those of Wollstonecraft, who regarded marriage as slavery. So, we might wonder how it was that Wollstonecraft and Godwin were married, As we will see when we discuss Wollstonecraft's biography, she had quite a reputation, both due to her feminist views and her well-publicized love affairs with the Swiss artist Henri Fuseli, and the American adventurer Gilbert Imlay, to whom she bore an illegitimate daughter. When she became pregnant with Godwin's child, who would be the novelist Mary Shelley, Godwin married Wollstonecraft so as to shield her from further public condemnation. Like Wollstonecraft, Godwin also takes up the inheritance issue, arguing that we ought to prefer no human being to another simply because of blood relationship. Let's turn now briefly to Hannah Moore, who offers a different response to the French Revolution. Moore was an intellectual woman like Wollstonecraft, though with very different political views. She was the daughter of a schoolmaster and was a passionate advocate of education for all, including women. In 1792, the Bishop of London persuaded Moore, who had written a number of plays for the theatre, to write a play called Village Politics, in order to counter the wild impressions of liberty and equality among the lower order of people. Village politics is a good example of what we might call agitprop, a word formed from agitation plus propaganda, meaning art in the service of the state, as we often saw during the regime of the Soviet Union. Moore is arguing here for the status quo in England. I might note here that agitprop usually does not produce good art. Like Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, Moore's play is arguing against the French Revolution, but it is geared toward the common people. In this play, Moore contrasts the French Constitution and rights of man with the English system, which is based largely on common law, and documents such as the Magna Carta and parliamentary acts of succession. She does so in the form of a straw-man dialogue, as scholars of rhetoric would call it. The characters represent different points of view, and argues those views in this dialogue. She stresses the interdependency of English society. Each has its place in what Edmund Burke would call a natural order. She uses biblical justification for the hierarchies in society and offers the argument that we don't need a revolution or a document called the rights of man because we, that is, the British people, already have what the French are seeking. Notice that she does offer some minor concessions that the great folk, that is, the people of wealth, power, and privilege, could be more pious and frugal. It was common in those times to criticize the corruption and flaws in the Church of England, whose parish system was roughly the equivalent of the American welfare system, whereby citizens' tithes or poor rates were used to take care of the poor. More allows for a bit of criticism here, while still upholding the superiority of the English system over what is happening in France." In this little play, the two characters, Tom and Jack, very common English names, have a Socratic dialogue in which Tom initially argues for the French Revolution's principles, while Jack argues for the superiority of the English system and maintains that all of these claims of French liberty are nothing but lies. At one point, Jack argues that I have got the use of my limbs, of my liberty, of the laws and of my Bible. The two first I take to be my natural rights, the last two my civil and religious. These, I take it, are the true rights of man, and all the rest is nothing but nonsense and madness and wickedness. Of quote. He also goes on to argue that unlike the French, even the rich and powerful are subject to the law. Therefore, there are mechanisms in place that could correct any injustices. Jack also points out that in England they have the Bible in the common language, whereas in France, quote, the Bible was shut up in an unknown heathenish tongue, end quote. He's referring to the Catholic Bible being in Latin. Jack says, While here thou and I can make as free use of ours as a bishop, Can no more be sent to prison unjustly than a judge, and are as much taken care of by the laws as the parliament man who makes them. He is arguing that these are the true rights of man, and we English don't need revolutions and documents such as the French have. He reminds Tom that the revolution in France overthrew both church and state, and that many of the clergy were executed during the terror. The French are portrayed therefore as ungodly, having no church or Sabbath. Not only that, but Jack argues that quote, this leveling makes people so dismal. These poor French fellows used to be the merriest dogs in the world, but since equality came in, I don't believe a Frenchman has ever laughed. So the revolution has destroyed their sense of humor. That's the ultimate sin. And Jack says, We have a king so loving that he would not hurt the people if he could, and so kept in that he could not hurt the people if he would. We have as much liberty as can make us happy, and more trade and riches than allows us to be good. We have the best laws in the world if they were more strictly enforced, and the best religion in the world if it was but better followed. While old England is safe, I'll glory in her and pray for her, and when she is in danger, I'll fight for her and die for her. Is it any wonder that Tom comes around to Jack's point of view and is converted to the righteousness of the English system?